I have a cartoon in my files. It's a picture of a boy and his mother listening to a sermon on the cross. And the little boy is crying. And his mother says, hush, you've heard this before. Is my heart in the cross? The practice of crucifixion did not begin with the Romans. It began with the Persians who used a stake. When Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, he spread that practice around his empire. And when the Romans took over the Grecian Empire and its divided kingdoms, they picked up this practice of crucifixion for criminals but they learned how to torture the victim before he died. In fact, the pain was so exquisite and so horrible that even death was wished for the victim. Contrary to modern thinking and because of medieval painters, many people picture Jesus carrying a cross and its stake to the crucifixion site. And actually he didn't do that. The stake was always left in the ground at the crucifixion site. But the patibulum or cross piece was carried by the criminal. It weighed somewhere between 100 and 110 pounds and was strapped to the back of the victim. Also contrary to what medieval painters have shown us, they never drove the stake or the uh, nail through the palm, the center of the palm of the hand, always at the base of the hand. If you'll put your finger there, there's a little indentation right there. It's on top of the carpal tunnel. And when that nail went through there, it touched every median nerve, and all of that pain would shoot through the body every time the victim moved. The practice of crucifixion did not begin in Rome, but they certainly learned how to torture the victim. I want you to look with me at the 23rd chapter of, or the 20, uh, yes, the 22nd chapter of uh, Luke for a moment, because the agony of our master did not begin on the cross. It began that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is chapter 22 of Luke, verse 39. And he came out and went as he was wont, the King James says, it was his habit, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless. This is in a mood in the original language that indicates to me he knew it wasn't possible for the cup to be removed. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now here's an interesting statement. And there appeared unto him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Why? This is the one who said, do not fear what man can do to you. Matthew 10, 28. Why did he need an angel? Maybe the next verse gives us the key. And being in an agony... I would, could and would translate that word traumatic situation. He was in a trauma. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
I asked my medical doctor's son, what in the world is being described there? He said, it sounds to me as if that's hematidrosis. That's a big word. It means blood drops. Hema is the Greek word for blood. Well, I said, what is hematidrosis and what causes it? He said, sometimes when there's a tremendous trauma, the capillaries under the skin break and the blood comes right out the pores of the skin. Is that what happened to Jesus here? I don't know. But if he suffered hematidrosis, it could have killed him because people who suffer it go into a deep shock and they need immediate medical attention. Is that why the angel came? Strengthening him? What I do know is his agony began here in the Garden of Gethsemane. His agony over being the scapegoat and having the weight of the sin of the entire world on this innocent one. He's suffering already. And it was at this point that he was arrested. And everything you read in your New Testament from that point on is illegal in terms of what they did. They arrested him at night. That was illegal under the Hebrew jurisprudence. They arrested him on the word of one of his own gang, so to speak. That was illegal. They arrested him on a holy day. That was illegal. They took him into custody without any charges. That was illegal. And they took him to the high priest, Annas, initially, and that was highly un illegal. Can you imagine being stopped for a traffic ticket and taken immediately to the Supreme Court? That's what they did. You were not allowed to appear before the head of the Sanhedrin prior to being tried in a lower situation. But that's what they did. And Annas wasn't the legal high priest at that time anyway. He had been deposed by the Roman government. His son-in-law Caiaphas was the legal high priest, but the Jews looked to Annas as their holy high priest. And he's the one that made so much money off the, tabernacle, off the temp temple that he wanted to keep his own family in power, of course. You remember that when the Jews would come to the temple with denarii in their pockets, they could not take the denarii or Roman coin into the temple. That would profane the temple. So they had to exchange the denarii for shekels or shekels, which is Jewish money. And when they exchanged it, the Jews were charging interest on that money, making merchandise of the temple. I saw a little boy selling candy bars to raise funds for some kind of schools project in the foyer of one church building, and somebody yelled, the money changers are in the temple. I said, that little boy's trying to cheat you, is he? That's what those money changers were doing, cheating the people who were bringing their money to have it exchanged. Annas made millions of dollars off the temple, and so his son-in-law, now in power, would do the same thing. But they took him to Annas first, and then they took him to Caiaphas. Illegal. Not allowed to take him to these people. And when he was in front of Caiaphas, look at Luke 23, 63. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and hit him and blindfolded him and struck him on the face and saying, prophesy, who hit you? Tell us. You notice he doesn't answer, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. He's not going to be part of their illegal situation until they ask him, are you the Christ? He said, not only am I the Christ, but you're going to see me enter heaven. Luke 23, 
verse 69. He then appears before the entire Sanhedrin. It was illegal. I wonder when I read that if Nicodemus and or Joseph were in that group of the Sanhedrin. I know Nicodemus was a member of it. But I don't remember that he ever spoke up for the Lord that night. Now he's been up quite late now. He's already had that terrible, shocking experience in the garden. And now they're hitting him and mocking him. And when they get tired, they take him to Pilate for the Roman part of the trial. It's interesting what they said when they got there. Pilate said, what's the charge? They said, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him. Wouldn't that be great to be arrested tonight and taken down to the sheriff's department? And the sheriff said, why'd you bring him? If he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him in here. Well, what's the charge? Well, let's find out one. Let's question him. So Pilate begins to question him and finds out that he comes from Galilee, and that gives Pilate an idea. He's been warned by his wife, Pilate has, to leave this man alone. And Pilate doesn't want to do anything with Jesus, and he finds out that this man is from a different province and it comes under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. Antipas is an interesting study. He's the one that took his cousin from Philip, his own brother. You remember John the baptizer told him, it's not lawful for thee to have her. You broke God's law here. And you know, it's interesting that the man that broke God's law, Herod Antipas, was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was also under God's law. But you remember what happened to John the baptizer for preaching that sermon, he lost his head. I have an idea, Antipas was just curious. Who is this Jesus? And so when they bring him before Herod, Herod wants him to perform miracles, to do his trick, so to speak, to satisfy Herod's curiosity. That's not going to be done. Miracles were never done to satisfy anyone's curiosity. They were only done to confirm the messenger as being from God. And oftentimes, when someone was sick, he was left to be sick, 2 Timothy 4.20, because there was no need there to confirm that messenger. Paul said of Trophimus, I left him at my lead him sick. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? He can't use that miracle unless he's using it for the proper purpose. After he's released from Herod and sent back with a beautiful robe and some other things, Pilate begins to wonder what to do with this fellow, and he remembers that there was a tradition among the people, that one could be released on a holy day. Look at Luke 23 now, 21. Notice what the crowd is doing. They said, crucify him, away with him. Crucify him. When you read that in the original language, it sounds like this. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They're being led in a chant to take the life of the Son of God. The crowd is now bloodthirsty. They want a death. Pilate tells them about their tradition. And now we're introduced to a man named Barabbas. Bar means son. Listen to this. Abbas means father. Had you ever noticed the irony that the son of his father was exchanged for the son of God? After Jesus is taken before Pilate. His soldiers begin to mock him. 
And one of them, in a cruel moment, weaves a thorn of a crown of thorns and places it on the head of our master. And he begins to bleed, obviously. They put a reed in his hand and that robe that Herod had given him on Jesus. And they start saying to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And one of them takes the reed out of Jesus' hand and hits him over the head with it, driving the thorns deeper into his head, causing him to bleed more and more. It's at that moment that John 19.1 comes into play. If you'll look at that with me. <coughs> He's been mocked. He's been up all night. He's been falsely accused and illegally tried. He's bleeding. And the Bible says, Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. I could say that in about four seconds and read it even more quickly. And that's all that's said. And it's easy to skip over that verse, I'm afraid. But do you know what scourging was? In Jerusalem, there was an actual room, and in the middle of that room, there was a stone table. The victim would be stripped of his clothes and laid on his stomach on that table. The table was about so big around. In front of the table were two iron rings, and behind it, two other iron rings. The victim would have his hands tied to the front rings and his feet to the back rings. The one who used the flagelli, or whip, did it differently from the way the Greeks and the Persians had done it. Sometimes the Greeks and the Persians would put very sharp pieces of glass or metal in their whips. The Romans didn't do that. They used lead balls. And they learned how to beat the back of a victim until it became black and blue. And then they could keep beating until they could see the back of the lungs of the criminal. He was scourged. They put that robe back on him and began to mock him again. Then tore the robe off of that open wound, tied the patibulum around on his back and sent him out to Golgotha. About 10 or 11 days before this all took place, a North African got out of his bed and got his sons Rufus and Alexander probably kissed his wife goodbye and started to walk toward Jerusalem. He'd been there twice before that year. It was his duty as a Jew to come three times a year to Jerusalem. Only when he arrived this time, everything was different, and the crowds were screaming, they're crucifying Jesus, they're crucifying Jesus. Evidently, this gentleman worked his way to the front of the crowd to see what was happening. And had not a Roman soldier picked him out and told him to help Jesus carry his cross, we never would have met Simon the Cyrene. And the only thing we know about him in history is he helped Jesus carry that cross piece. When they got our master to Golgotha, they laid him on his back, drove a spike through his left palm, then his right palm, picked that patibulum up and set it on top of the stake, pushed his knees up into a 45-degree angle, bent, put his right foot on top of his left foot, and drove a spike through both feet, again through the median nerves, with every pain exploding all over his body. Pilate had a sign made to put behind his head. This is the king of the Jews. It was in three languages. 
Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And that's how we get that shape of the cross that we know so familiarly, with a little bit sticking up above the patipulum, the Christian cross, the symbol of the terrible, terrible act in history that put the Son of God on a cross. A victim who is crucified cannot breathe. He's hanging in such a position that in order to breathe, he must push himself up. But if he pushes himself up, he's in such agony that he can't do it very long. And so most of them just hang there until an unusual thing happens. Because he cannot exhale, the carbon dioxide builds up in his blood to such an extent that his body convulses. And when it convulses, it pushes him upward where he can take a breath. And in one of those moments when our master could take a breath, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And some ungodly preacher this morning is going to tell his audience that that crowd was forgiven that very moment and he'd be lying, he'd be lying. I know exactly when that crowd was offered forgiveness. I read it in my Bible. And if you have a New Testament with you today, I want you to see when that crowd was offered forgiveness. Acts 2.36 when Peter said to that crowd, let all the house of Israel know surely that this same Jesus whom you crucified, that's the crowd, God hath raised both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? Now listen to Peter as he tells them how to be forgiven. And my friend, you cannot be forgiven in answer to prayer. Not if you're an alien sinner. Oh, no, sir. You can't pray your way through into Christ. You have to do what God said to do in order to get forgiveness, and that's what that crowd was told. You sinners, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38. Verse 41 says, They that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. The church began from those in the crowd who had crucified Christ, who prayed for them that they would be forgiven, but they had to do what was necessary in order to be forgiven. But I'm back to my master now on that cross, who in another moment when he could push himself up or was pushed up by the convulsions, saw his mother and John standing there. And he sent his mother home with John. He said, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. It's amazing to me that in the midst of all of that agony, he could think about his earthly family. And if he could think about his earthly family in the midst of all that agony, I know he thinks about his spiritual family. That great love he had shines through there for me. Hanging on either side of our Lord were two thieves, one of whom evidently had heard about the kingdom. And after having railed on him, he must have repented and said to Jesus, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
You think about that when you read that he would not let the gates of Hades prevail against his building the church. He went into Hades, the Hadean realm, but he went into that portion of it called paradise and took the thief with him, or the thief went there with him that day. What a promise that was. You know, some people say, well, the thief wasn't baptized, and I don't need to be baptized. Oh, if my heart's in the cross, I'll never think like that. First of all, I don't want to be nailed to a cross next to Jesus. That's where the thief was. But you have to remember the thief didn't live under the law of Christ. He lived under the law of Moses. And I want you to tell me how you know he wasn't baptized. He knew about the kingdom. And according to Luke 7, 29 and 30, those that heard about the kingdom were baptized and justified themselves before God by doing so. I don't know that he was baptized. But you don't know that he wasn't. I do know he knew about the kingdom of God. A little while later, one of the greatest moments for us occurred. As the agony deepened, as he convulsed more and more, and in one moment when he could do it, he cried in his native tongue, the one he had spoken as a boy, and said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. We know that's a quote from Psalm 22.1. It's a prophecy of his taking our place, and he cries out with that on the cross. God hadn't forsaken him. But in that terrible agony, it must have felt like that, and maybe you felt like that sometimes. But you remember that Jesus identified with you and me on that cross that day. That's our cry. That's the psalmist's cry. When we feel like nobody's on our side, God's not with us. Why hast thou forsaken me? But my Bible says that Isaiah 53 and 11 and 12 that God saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. That's why he sent his son for that moment when he would take our places. And he did so. What a moment. When you read that, remember, that's our cry. And he made it for us. I thirst, he said. And then he said, Father, into thy hands. Listen to him. I commend my spirit. What confidence he had in his father. But how did he die? You and I deserve to die physically. We've sinned. He didn't sin. He made him to be sin, that is a sin offering, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But he didn't sin. And the wages of sin is death. How did he die? He's not a sinner. He has no deserving quality that would bring death upon him. I hope everybody in this auditorium will look at John 10 with me for a moment. Beginning at verse 17. Please look at this passage. Try to get a hold of what the Master did for us here. Therefore doth my Father love me. Why, Jesus? Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. 
you going to argue with him and say, well, the Romans did it or the Jews did it? He said, no man took it from me. I have power to lay it down. You have what? I have power to lay it down. Have you ever met a being who had the ability to will himself to death? Who had a message from heaven itself that said he could do that? The Hebrews writer tells us that he was given a body so he could die. Because God can't die. But God can leave a body and that's how we die, we leave our bodies. He's not annihilated here. He's separated from his body and he has the power to do that, he says. How did you die, master? I willed myself to death. Why did you do that? Because I love mankind. What held you on the cross? My love, not the nails. No, my love. Then he said, it is finished. And having said that, he gave up the ghost. Some soldiers came by to take the bodies down. In order to hasten the death of the thieves, they broke their legs so that they could not be pushed up anymore at all, whether by themselves or through convulsions. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And then John reports, and forthwith there came out blood and water. I asked my medical doctor's son why that statement. He said, Dad, the heart sack broke. I said, did the spear pierce it? Possible. But it indicates that the body was dead already. Did Jesus die of a broken heart? And why do I need to be told that anyway? Well, if my heart's really in the crucifixion, I know that the blood of Jesus forgives my sins. And I want to know how to contact that blood. Just believing that he did this won't contact the blood. But if you'll listen to Paul for a moment, he'll tell you how to do it. Do you not know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, listen to Paul now, listen to him, it's not me, this is Paul. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is an ambassador of heaven. He said, do you not know that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Why do I need to be baptized into his death? That's when the blood flowed. John says, he that saw bear record, and we know his record's true. Are you in Christ this morning? If your heart's in the cross, you can't be anyplace else. And I beg you right now to come to the cross of Christ while we stand and while we sing.